0: Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night
1: influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hi, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor. This is a show where I like to talk to comedians to not only learn about their late night influences, but also to just learn how they got to where they are today and how they got so, so funny. Now, today... Uh, I have on the show someone who is not only an improviser, but she has written her own one-woman show entitled White Woman in Progress, and she's also acted in multiple television shows and movies, including the Oscar and Golden Globe-winning movie Selma. So I'm excited to have her here on Talking Late Night, and without further ado, please welcome to the show Miss Tara Oaks. Tara, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Max. I'm waiting for. Is there like applause? Do you have like an applause button or something? I, I can edit that in later. <laughs> that,
1: that's me. That's me clapping. So we...
0: okay, that'll do. Now I work, work for clap.
1: Before before we start talking about your late night yeah. influences, uh, there's something that I want to tell you. uh Oh, and that's I don't. You probably don't remember this, but years and years and years ago, we actually yeah. met in person.
0: Oh, really? Oh, I'm the worst at this game. Okay, tell me about it.
1: So what happened was, uh, well, I'm 19 years old, and it was for my 17th birthday. And for Mm. my birthday, I went to a show at Dad's Garage while you guys were at Seven Stages. Okay. And what happened was uh, we were sitting in the first row. My parents got me VIP, like the VIP seats. We're sitting in the front row. And all of a sudden, um, you said, you said, now I know that we have a birthday here in the mm. audience. So me being the, the type of person I am, I jump right up. I'm like, it's my birthday. Later, I found out <laughs> that my parents actually didn't tell anybody it was my birthday. It was for somebody else. But I just jumped oh, no. up. Assuming it was for me. So, I mean, you didn't know any better. No, no one knew. No. And so... I get up there with you and we start having a conversation and somehow we got to this point where you asked me how old I thought you were.
0: Oh, no. Oh, that's great. Okay, good. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and a good me, bit. great bit. me being my 17 year old self and not knowing better, I took a guess and I guessed 50 years old.
0: <laughs> okay, so you just to, you were being funny, right? That was not a legitimate guess. You were well, doing a bit.
1: Yes, I, absolutely. I was. It was complete. It was a bit. It got a it got a big laugh from everybody. Yeah. It, not you. It didn't get a laugh from you. It got a laugh from everybody no, else. No, that's not 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 very funny to me.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, yeah. Now you know we are we are acquainted because we have that's
0: met. That's great. I love that story. And that I have to give it to you. That's a good bit, especially because. I don't even look my age, which is now forty one. Um, would have been, I guess, thirty nine back then. So that would have been like a real sensitive time to kind of do a little dig,
1: yeah.
0: You know, because I hadn't quite turned forty, and I was like, oh god, what's going to happen? Uh, and then you're like, you look fifty, and that's I, I fully appreciate a good expense at someone's or a good bit at someone's expense. So I have, I'll give you that one. Well, okay.
1: Well, I, I did not, I did not mean it in any type of harmful way. <laughs>
0: Of course you didn't. You have no context for age at 17. You're like, you're old. That's about all you have. Right. I mean, like you
1: would make a terrible carnival barker. No, no, it's true. You know how many prizes I would give away if that was my job? All of them. You would give away all the prizes. They would let me go in one day because that would mm-hmm. be it. But you would close the booth down for sure. <laughs> well, now uh, to get into talking a little bit about late night, I just want to go ahead and yeah. ask you, you know, growing up, What late night influenced you in your comedy?
0: so funny that you use the term late night Um, because I just, I don't really, you know, I guess that's right. Like all comedy, especially in my generation, happens a little bit more in the late night. I guess that was where you could be a little more risky and edgy. Um, But for me growing up, my childhood sort of exposure to comedy would have been Saturday Night Live. That was kind of the only access I had as a kid because you, I wasn't really allowed to stay up for whatever Johnny Carson or I guess I don't know when Jay and David Letterman started showing up in my trajectory but you know you weren't allowed to stay up that late so weekends we were allowed to stay up and my brother and I would watch Saturday Night Live um, and, and Tracy Ullman I think would have been the other one I would point to a sort of oh, this is comedy, this is funny. And my brother and I were obsessed with Saturday Night Live. We would memorize every sketch, and then we would reenact them at church the next day. So I think that's where I sort of started tapping into comedy. I think it's a pretty common story for kids growing up in the 80s because we didn't have quite as much of a spread. And if you were in a small town, like there, wasn't, there weren't like comedy venues to go
1: to. So Who, yeah, who on me. Saturday Night Live pulled your attention the most? Um... Gosh, that's a good question.
0: Who pulled my attention the most? Um, I think, you know, because in, in the sort of Saturday Night Live heyday that I was in, you, you knew all those guys were also in movies. So like Chevy Chase was also doing movies and Bill Murray was also doing movies, you know. So those were the, uh, definitely Chevy and Bill Murray and Steve Martin. Um, and then, of course, uh, the women... I want, to be, I want to be like, oh, these women really motivated me, but I guess Tracy Ullman, who wasn't Time Out Live, um, she had her own show, um, was kind of one of the only female influences I had. I just loved this big, stupid comedy. Like, I think about Three Amigos as sort of being like a touch point for the kind of comedy I thought was just genius. I thought it was, always thought it was so funny when adults would talk about stuff that I wasn't allowed to talk about, but like rude things like, you know, like poop and butts and, you know, um, yeah, and act silly and have, and make big noises and be inappropriate. Like that to me was hilarious because it was so, you know, I was taught to behave myself and not to act out and to stay quiet and be pretty and put on my makeup and behave. The boys were allowed to run outside and shout, but I wasn't allowed to. So seeing adults do that, I was like, ah, that's great. I want to do that.
1: I'm not as familiar with Tracy Ullman and her work, but was it the same with the silliness? Yeah, she had this great, um, she
0: was just big and rude. Um, She did a lot of sketches. She's obviously a British comedian. Um, That's where the Simpsons actually originated as far as I remember. Um, they had they would have like a little interstitial cartoon, and it was the Simpsons um, so that 's where Simpsons started too and she would come out in a bathrobe and she would just shout to the audience, Go home, go home!" and I thought that was hilarious i loved, I also loved British comedy, like I love Monty python and so yeah, She Tracy was great i, I don 't know I, you know what i haven 't seen it I, I would love to go back and watch her show and see if it still resonates with me. But I can just remember at the time, it seemed so silly. I love Big and Silly. And you also liked sketch, right? Mm, yeah, definitely. I love sketch. Although I, I didn't really go into it. It's so interesting. I mean, I definitely had some sketch in my career, but um, yeah, I loved sketch comedy. I was, I was big into In the 90s, I, loved, I had this series of um, video, VH, these things called VHS tapes. You kids don't know what these are. But back in the day, uh, that's it's sort of the the video mixtape would be these VHSs. So whoever had access to HBO or BBC somehow, you would record the um, the whatever shows, and then you'd pass share it with your friends. So I had this stack of VHSs that I'd gotten from some kid that were all kids in the hall in the state. I don't know how they recorded it, but they're all mixed up. <laughs> so to this day, I still get those guys mixed up. But yeah, I loved, I loved sketch.
1: Were you the only sure. one of your friends when you were, you know, younger that was watching these sketch shows and these comedy shows?
0: No, no, we were, we were all into it together. We would, this is sort of a ritual, things like watching Monty Python movies or, um, there's this great documentary called Vernon, Florida, which was Errol Morris This documentary. Um, filmmaker and he took a camera down to this Vernon Porter which is the city actually or it's a small, small town outside of Tallahassee and he just did interviews of these crazy weird backwoods southern people um, and we would just roll laughing watching these people talking they're so fascinating so, so when yeah
1: earlier about you you know, t- watching the, sh- the sketches on SNL and then, like, performing them, reproducing them at church. Mm-hmm. How did you do this?
0: <laughs> um, uh, between my brother and I, we sort of remembered most of the jokes, mm-hmm. and then we would, yeah, just sort of repeat them horribly, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like we got dressed up or anything. Mm-hmm. Kind of tried to do our impressions.
1: Now, when you did this, were adults like, come on, stop acting silly, let's kind of act professional here, or, or, or did they support you in your endeavors? Oh, they loved
0: it. They loved it. They're like, oh, put on a show for us. Excellent. Entertain us, children. It's free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they thought it was hilarious. I mean, this is, you have to keep in mind, this is like network television, so there's nothing on there that's officially disapproved of, mm-hmm. Um. so... In those cases, it was like, that was, I loved getting laughs. And my dad's a big jokester, too. He thinks he's, he's like the original dad joker. Um, and hit, his, our last name is Oaks, and his first initial is J. Um, so he was jokes, which I don't know if that's stupid, but yeah. it's amazing. Funny. Um, yeah, so he was funny. He, he liked to be funny. We loved, the, I loved, loved getting laughs and attention, mean, that's kind of where it all comes from, right? We just all want, to be, we all want to be given attention and approval.
1: Oh No, I agree. That's how I am. I agree with that completely.
0: Yeah, well, I think like, I realized later on um, that I got to the point where that was my safe space. If I was making a joke, I was safe. So I actually found myself at some point, we were doing a ropes course, and this was when I was in like high school, and I was out doing a ropes course with a bunch of kids um, at a summer camp. And they put me on this particularly scary uh, ropes course element, they call them, this giant swinging like human ladder and you had to climb up these giant logs. And it was scary as hell. And you get to a point where you can try and risk your life to get to the next rung or you can just, or you're done. You know, so you're having to make that decision for yourself and you're swinging and everybody's staring at you. And I just started making jokes and doing bits, like manically. And they're all... And, you know, half the group's laughing and kind of the laughter dies down after a moment because they realize I'm not going to stop doing bits because I'm so scared. <laughs> so as long as I keep making jokes, then that was like, that was my safe space, I guess. I make jokes when I'm uncomfortable.
1: And and creating comedy, making people laugh, did you use that to deal not only with uncomfortableness but with shyness or maybe anxiety or embarrassment?
0: I mean, I check. Think so? It's weird. I, for me, comedy was uh, an excuse to misbehave. You know, so I didn't. I really wasn't a particularly shy kid. I wasn't embarrassed or introverted. I was frustrated with not being allowed to play like a boy or be loud and silly. Like I was frustrated with the constraints of, cons- you know, southern conservative. Uh, standards of how a girl should be, I think, is really what it was for me. So, comedy was permission to be rude, to be obnoxious, to be uh, loud and inappropriate, and that was thrilling to me. I, there was and it's still to this day, it's kind of bad because there's nothing I love more than making everybody uncomfortable. It's just so scintillating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Now you keep so. mentioning, um, and and you've mentioned how the the kind of the gender differences when it comes to comedy and that how oh, been yeah. established in comedy. So can you just explain to me how difficult it was, especially when you're in those high school years where people are constantly judging you when you wanted to be silly and goofy, and people kept trying to put you down simply because you were a girl.
0: Oh yeah, I mean that's the, that that's really what it boils down to is. There, and I don't think I'm really treading on new territory here, but I definitely had the experience of um, sort of a standard for feminism and for females uh, of being polite and considerate and not talking out of turn. You know, we are that was a standard of uh, femininity for us. So being loud, making jokes—that's what boys did, and you weren't allowed to do that. Um, and it just never it just it didn't interest me at all. Being behaving like a lady, and so I pushed back against it quite a bit. Um, and then, you know, and as long as you were in a space where it was permitted, like a theater performance, mm-hmm. uh, you were allowed. So that was my escape: was to be able to do comedy. And I was just, honestly, I was really good at it. I was really good at reading a room, working a laugh. My timing was really sharp, and when I had a, an audience in the palm of my hand, which I was doing in 10th grade, um, you know, which seems kind of surprising to me now. I guess it didn't seem young at the time, but now it's just like, yeah, wow, think about, uh, 10th grade seems like a kid to me. And I could whole, I could have an audience just rolling, doing a uh, roll in an arsenic and old lace for high school. You know, and I would just work it. And I, I broke rules a lot. You know, I would add things and, so improvising was another way of misbehaving because you were, you were off script, you know? Nobody, nobody knew what was coming next. And that's when you get the biggest laugh is when people know that you're being extemporaneous. Then uh, there's sort of a thrilling feeling of uh, sort of mutual creation, you know, like, ah, this, we're doing this together. This is, this is something special. and we're, It's the exclusive. We're getting the exclusive on this, you know? So it's like that feeling. Ah, oh, it was great. I loved it.
1: When you first started uh, at at this young age, venturing Mm -hmm. into improv, venturing into comedy, who do you remember that stands out as your biggest supporter?
0: Oh, that's very easy. And it's actually one of my favorite parts of my story was, um, so I... You know, I was, I was a funny kid for sure, and I didn't, and every, I was the theater kid. You know, I was one of those mainstays main in the theater department. So when I went to college, I didn't really know what else to do but do theater. And up to this point, I'd never heard of improv. Um, and I didn't really understand comedy to be a trajectory, it was just be in a, do plays. You know, that was sort of the extent of my performance sort of scope. Um, and so I went to Florida State where they have a really good theater program and they have these two different degrees, one sort of a generic uh, bachelor's, in, uh, bachelor's of arts in theater, and then they have a bachelor's of fine arts. Well, I didn't know any of this stuff, um, but I got the sense pretty quickly that there was this sort of upper echelon of serious actors who were no bullshit. They were really good, and, and they were getting all the parts. And I didn't really fit in with that world. Um, and about the same, you know, so the first play I auditioned for was a Shakespeare play. And I just fucked around when the audition, like I just acted like as big a dipshit as I could. Um, and the director luckily was like, who the hell is this idiot? She, I have to have her in my show. And they gave me a little chorus part in this Shakespeare play that was populated by, it was a comedy, it was All's Well that Ends Well. And he had cast a bunch of other uh, actors in the program who also did, who had an improv troupe called the Waymo Players. So I I had all these sort of older guys, you know, seniors, in this play with me that were like, come hang with us, kid. Uh, And they were like a bunch of big brothers. So the Waymo Players were the guys that founded Dad's Garage. Mm -hmm. So they were all my big brothers. That was my entree into comedy improv, I would go watch them every show they had, we would all party together, they would they would do other sort of scripted, silly scripted shows, like, I think we did like a Three's Company episode uh, we just did a Three's Company episode, and they are like, come be in this with us and so they really welcomed me into their world, there was no oh, you're a girl, you're not funny, it was well, you're a cute girl, and this is the only way you're going to talk to us yeah. so come hang out um, and when they graduated, so that was their last year was my first year, when they graduated, one of their members, Stephen Greeno, was, ha- <laughs> well, he was in the BSA program, so he had a couple more years to go, and he started the next generation of the improv troupe and invited me to be a part of it. And kind of the rest is history. I would go down to Orlando and play at Sax Theater, which is a big, big improv theater that gave birth to a lot of really great comedians, um, and so I would hang out there, and I would do shows in Tallahassee. Uh, and as soon as I graduated, I came up to Atlanta and started playing at Dad's Garage. It was, it was a no-brainer because there weren't any girls playing. So I was surrounded by guys, which I loved. Um, none of them really ended up being my boyfriend, which is so typical Tara. Like, <laughs> I have had a crush on every guy, but I did never date any of them. They were all my big brothers. Um, it never really worked. It was a theory that if I did comedy, I would get dates, but it didn't really play out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was—I I was getting direct feedback. So you're in this degree program where they're teaching you how to use your voice and your body and to deliver lines, and it felt a little hollow. And then I'd go to the bar and do improv, and we'd get huge laughs and twenty bucks cash and a pizza, and you know, so that was like, oh, this. This makes more sense to me. I'm going to keep doing the comedy because that's got direct rewards. Now, I yeah, had,
1: that was that was my path. I had Matt Stanton. He was actually my first uh, guest on my show, and oh man, he I I was talking to him about how dads got to Atlanta, and he told me about the process of how they were deciding, uh, and it came down to Atlanta, Washington D.C., and New Orleans. Do you remember Ooh. this process of? When they were all graduating and when they were thinking about the next step, Well, uh, no,
0: I don't. Um, it was super sad for me because I really only got one year with him. And Matt Stanton and I were thick as fucking thieves. I followed him everywhere. He could <laughs> not shake my tail. Um, yeah, he was one of my favorites, and we're we're still to this day like very very close friends. Uh, and Matt Young, his best friend, who was coming in from Orlando, also the three of us were inseparable. Um. But yeah, I don't remember, I don't remember them having any, I'm super glad they didn't go anywhere else, because um, I would go up, I was able to drive up to Atlanta and play with them, you know, on my breaks, uh, come perform with them. So, I don't remember them choosing one over the other, but good God, they made the right choice, don't you think?
1: Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, the Olympics were about to happen, and I don't know if that affected their decision or not, but that was a big deal, because they... They started in 95 in the Olympics for 96.
1: Well, I so, can tell you from what I learned, or at least from what Matt told me. Yeah. He told me that the reason why they didn't pick Washington, D.C. was because they felt like they would have to go too political if they went there. Mm. And the reason yeah. why they didn't pick uh, New Orleans was because they thought if they moved to New Orleans, they'd all be dead in six months.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say they'd all die of alcohol poisoning. Yeah, no, there's no question. We partied hard. <laughs> That's, yeah.
1: That's how that they ended
0: sense. up here. Thank goodness.
1: How did you end up? Well, I
0: followed them. I followed them. I was, I was already coming up to Atlanta and playing. I didn't really know what was... I had never planned ahead, to be honest, in my career. I sort of had ideas of like, oh, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do next. Um, so I just packed up my stuff and followed them to Atlanta because I had a bunch of friends here, and it was a safe space. You know, for me, what, getting out of college, it's... It, all of a sudden, you're supposed to be an adult. It's kind of terrifying. They just kind of throw you in the adult pool, and you're like, oh, shit, I, I guess I'm swimming. i got to buy a trash can. <laughs> you know? kind of crazy.
1: And so when you got to Atlanta, were you just at Dad's Garage, or you were doing other things in the comedy and theater world?
0: Well, I was doing other things in the theater world. Um, I didn't, there, it was just us and the whole world at the time. And Laughing Matters, I guess, didn't have a space, but they were, they were around as well. Um, but we were a much tight, more tight-knit community then, so everybody was kind of using everybody else and their stuff. Uh, and then I was also doing plays at Dad's, and then that got me connected to um, Heidi Klein and Richard Barner, who had theaters. So I would, you know, I did shows at Seven Stages, and I did shows at George Shakespeare Festival, and Solstice was a theater company at the time. Um, so I just sort of branched out and was embraced in the theater community pretty quickly. And it's, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I did improv. So I wasn't uh, shy. I wasn't nervous. I was really ballsy. In fact, when I was a freshman in college, um, I auditioned to be in the BFA program because you have to audition to be. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, I'm sort of a perfectionist. You know, I want to be the best at everything. so. I was like, oh, that's the best degree. That's where the really good actors are. So I'll, I'll just get in that. I didn't even think, I was like hardly prepared. <laughs> and I did the audition, and I didn't get chosen to be in the BFA program. I was like, what is this thing called rejection? I don't understand. Uh, and one of the professors that had been one of the judges of the new talent uh, approached me afterwards. And he's like, um, do you work out? <laughs> which is a really queer thing to be asked by a professor. You're like, Oh gross, what? I was like, no. <laughs> uh, working out wasn't a thing back then. And he's like, well, you're really uncomfortable in your body. And so you might want to consider taking some dance classes or, you know, exercising at the gym because the reason we didn't choose you is because you were so physically awkward. Um, you weren't comfortable in your own skin. And it's so funny to look back and think about that now because, with improv, I was let loose, and I just just turned and that was kind of one of my things was physical comedy. So that's probably what helped me to be a better actress.
1: So tell me about your transition because I know you left Atlanta. Uh, I did. What actually but, Matt Stanton
0: and I drove to L.A. three years later.
1: He just kind of was along for the ride. <laughs> was fun. Well, what was your thought process in that?
0: Um, I heard my. This is my thought process. Um, I think actors are supposed to go to L.A. or New York. <laughs> I'll go to L.A. That was it. That was the extent of the thought process. There was no, let me research the different cities. Let me see what professionally would be a good choice. No, and I was like, mm, I think I've got to go in three years. I have no idea where I got that. I had not even been to L.A. before I decided to move there. And, in oh. fact, it's probably a good thing because I wouldn't have moved there if I
1: hadn't <laughs> already made up my mind. Did you have, like, housing, or did you just get in the car and start driving?
0: Uh, best story ever. Uh, no, I got in the car and started driving. Um, basically, I rented. I was like, okay, I'm going to leave the day after New Year's. And I just told everybody, I, was, I, I got rid of my, you know, I, I told the landlord I was moving out, you know, and it's end of, end of the month kind of thing, so it's like, all right. Um, so I packed up a U-Haul. Uh, but a week before I left for L.A., I, wasn't, I had no idea where I was going to live. I was just going to show, oh, God, what an idiot. And I was working uh, at a hair salon called Van Michaels in Buckhead, which um, Allison Hastings had get, gotten me a job there. The Florida State Connections saved my butt in so many ways. Um, so anyway, I was working at this hair salon. And this. by the way, Max, the theme of my life could be summed up in there was this cute guy. Um, that's like the whole theme of my life. So there was this hot guy that walked in to the salon and I'm a receptionist and, uh, he's a new, you know, he was a new guest at the salon, new client. So I had to enter his information into the computer and I, you know, we asked him his name and his phone number and his address. And he says, Santa Monica, California. And I said, Oh, I'm moving to LA next week. And he goes, Oh really? Do you have a place to stay? <laughs> oh, Jesus, I can't believe. And I was like, no. And he goes, do you want to stay at my place?" <laughs> and I was like, oh. And he goes, well, I'm not going to be there for two months. I'm going to be out of town. This is also pre-Airbnb or any shit like that. He's like, I've got this apartment in Santa Monica. Um, I'll sublet it to you for two months while I'm in Germany, if you want. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up subletting this really great one-bedroom apartment six blocks from the beach. For like 500 bucks a month um for the first two months just because some dude randomly offered it to a total stranger uh, to me it was a really of course at the time I was like oh, 500 bucks that's ridiculous I also didn't talk like that but now I think I should have um uh, but but I forked it out and I had a really great place for two months and then by then I sort of infiltrated the scene and uh Connected with a lot of comedy people out there, so I ended up moving in to another place two months later with a group of guys who were part of the One Hit Wonders, which was a comedy troupe, a sketch, well, mostly a sketch comedy troupe out of uh, Oklahoma that I had met when we were at the big Stinking Improv Festival like a year before in Austin. Um, So those were some cute guys. And so (laughs) I ended up moving in with them. that was a really great
1: apartment for a little while. Do you still talk to this guy who gave you this original? No. 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 God, I I don't even know. I don't remember his
0: name or anything. That'd be so funny. No, he was actually, I mean, we lucked out, okay? Anybody could be a serial killer, but this (laughs) gentleman, he was a little bit older than me. Like, he was probably, like, 10 years older than me, and he had this really great job with BMW. Um, But, yeah, he's like, I'm moving back, and I was like, okay, thanks for the place. Never kept in touch with him. No idea who that guy is.
1: That is the craziest thing I think I've ever heard. so crazy.
0: It's so much... It kind of sucks now with social media because it's like, oh, you have to keep in touch with everybody. And so many people are like, oh, remember me? I don't. Even though I have Facebook and I see your page, I still don't know you at all. But I'm expected to now because of this Facebook thing.
1: Right. But I feel like... It's almost in a way better that you don't know this guy because one, you have this story forever, you know. Yeah. And yeah. it's almost in a way to me, it's more personal that you never saw him again. Like it's a again, more... isn't that so much more interesting? Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Oh, so many greats. Yeah, I, I just like that so much better. So when yeah.
1: Moved out to L.A. and obviously you didn't know anybody. You don't know what you're doing. How do you take that first step or get your foot in the door? What's the first move that you make?
0: But I did know everybody. That's the thing is by after three years, the improv community in the nineties was still really kind of small Ah. in a way. Um, if you, you know, there's so a second city had been doing it for a little while and New York and LA had kind of grown their communities. Um, Theater sports had started to connect cities. So Keith Johnstone had started connecting a lot of cities by planting theater sports everywhere. And then comedy sports had started to um, plant roots in a number of cities. Uh, so, but ultimately we weren't that big of a community. So I knew the Houseful of Honkies, which was a comedy group uh, that Wayne Brady was a part of and a bunch of other names that I'm not on drop right now, but they're amazing people. So. I knew all of those guys because of Matt Young, um, and I knew all of the London, all of the theater sports people because I'd spent uh, a summer in London and had immediately been inserted into the London theater sports team. So I knew Edie um, O'Connor and Dan, and uh, you know that whole team. So I had all those friends. I had my house full of honkies friends. I was partying with Dan Harmon before he was Dan Harmon. You know, and Jeff Davis and Rob Schraub and all those guys, because they were all friends with Matt Young's team. So we all hung out together. uh, And everybody knew everybody. And so I was definitely not alone. The comedy scene was my family. And so that's how I was able to get into shows and, you know, work my way up uh, because, yeah, they needed girls everywhere.
1: Was there ever a moment when you were out in LA that you felt like you were struggling, or really from day one, you, you were finding success at every turn? It depends
0: on how you define success. Because for me, I was having a blast. I was doing comedy, but I wasn't really getting paid for it. I was, you know, I, I was getting some commercials here and there, and every now and then I'd have sort of a break. Um, I was again, because of my comedy connections, I got invited to audition for Damon Wayans' new sketch show, and I got booked as a series regular on that, um, it didn't really, it was panned as the worst sketch show of all time, (laughs) but, you know, I sort of infiltrated that, and that was like, oh my God, I'm going to be famous, you know, Damon's sitting there in a room with, uh, his, uh, son Damon Wayans Jr., uh, was a part of the cast, and, uh, um, Mikey, oh God, what is Mikey's last name? He's on SNL now. He's killing it. He was part of the cast, Mikey Day. Um, and, you know, and Edie was, Edie got brought in a little bit later. But, but we were all, he's, we're sitting in a room with Damon and he's like, this is going to be the next In Living Color. So I run home and uh, order the In Living Color DVDs from Netflix back when they were still doing just DVDs. And I'm watching In Living Color going, this isn't as funny as I remember. was really racist, (laughs) Um, but you know you you're like oh cool this is it this is I'm gonna be on Saturday Night Live I'm gonna be I'm gonna have a comedy show and then I got fired off of that because it's just I just did I kind of didn't know what I was doing and I hadn't really written sketch before that's what they needed Um, but yeah so you have these sort of pops of excitement but you know how do you how do you really define success because after eight and a half years I was still waiting tables and I was still hustling to just get acting jobs and I was I wanted to do everything but I wasn't really doing consistently a lot of anything other than improv. Did you pay the bills?
1: Did you ever feel a pressure from either like your family member or from other friends when they were expecting you, you know, oh hey Tara, why aren't you on SNL yet? Did you ever feel a pressure to do better than what you were doing? Yeah, I
0: always, I mean, my family was definitely confused as to how I was making a career of it. I I had to sit them down. They were very supportive, but they were supportive of me being safe and having, you know, stability. So, you know, I had to sit them down and say, hey, I'm not, stop stop sending me emails about the Navy because I'm not going to join the Navy. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be a teacher. I really am going to make this a job. And they were like, oh, okay, well, when are you going to be on TV next? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But they were very supportive. But yeah, I did never think, you know, the whole time I was doing it, I was like, I'm just not quite funny enough. I never felt really good at anything as far as comedy goes. I felt like I was good enough for a girl, but I didn't think I was that good. You know, and I got like a callback to Mad TV, but then I didn't get any further. And I got auditions for the Daily Show correspondence, but I didn't get any further. And um, and so I thought it was just because I wasn't quite funny enough. And honestly, to this day, I would probably say that's kind of true. Um, you know, I wasn't one of those standout. Holy crap, she's hilarious! I can't. Who is this person? Um, but also because of that it was a little self-defeating because I didn't push really hard to get better. Like I didn't go out and do a ton of workshops. Um, I didn't study. I didn't um, stretch myself into writing and sketch. I would, I would always just kind of shut down and be like, uh, I, I remember taking a couple of classes at UCB when they first started in LA. And I got to about the third level and I'm not going to name the teacher, uh, but it was one of their main people. Um, and I think he might have been in a bad space, but he really shut me down, one, 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 one class in particular. He just really made me feel like an asshole. And I had done, I basically tried to do a bit. I tried to be, I was trying to be funny in one scene. And he's like, well, you think that was going to make everybody laugh? Is that why you did it? Because you totally, um, you totally, whatever, uh, killed the game. You know, or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I was trying to get a laugh. Um, You know, and I felt so shitty about it uh, that I never went back to that class. So there was definitely a part of me that comedy is scary, man. It's very competitive. And there there was a fear for me that I wasn't quite good enough. So I never really tried to get better at it. Um, So after eight years in LA, I had had an interesting run and a lot of fun, but I didn't. See, I wasn't making enough money to pay the rent. I had to keep waiting tables. And I was thirty three. And I was like, forget this. This isn't happening. Uh, and I went on a road trip with a friend. And when I came back from the road trip, I realized that I'd just gotten my sort of perspective on the world had just gotten so insular and so myopic that I'd kind of forgotten that there's a big world out there and that there is a place where I'm needed Um, And that, you know, I do have value if just because I didn't find it in L.A. doesn't mean it didn't exist. And so I left L.A. and I went back to Atlanta where, you know, I thought I was going to be big cheese again um, in the improv scene. And I was not. (laughs) They didn't, they were, uh, everything had kind of grown without me. So it took me a little while to sort of get my sea legs in the Atlanta comedy scene again. It was scary.
1: What what was a turning point for you? because I know you were talking about the fear mm-hmm. that you know I'm not good enough, which is I think personally a fear that a lot of comedians have. Oh, we are, yeah, that's why know, that's like the heart of comedy is like, please love me
0: because <laughs> right, right, I can't like, love myself.
1: <laughs> comparing yourself to others, and the thing about comedy mm-hmm. is you get that instant feedback, and it's that yes. of, and so if you don't get it, you have failed, you know, Oh well, yeah. in a lot of other things, like if you're a novel writer and you sell your book, you don't know how these people feel. They could love it. You, you never know. But with okay. comedy, you get up there, they're not laughing. They're not smiling. That really takes a hit on your. It's self the comedy. end of the world. Right. It's, it's it, the it, end it. of the world. Yeah. So what, what was oh, a, God. Yeah. What was a big turning point for you where you were like, no, you know what? I am funny. I am good at what I'm doing.
0: Um, I think it was the Second City audition, you know. And I've never really considered, you know, I don't, I haven't really evaluated this story in terms of like a turning point. Um, but I think that's probably what it was, uh, because Second City was doing what they call theatricals, where they would sort of install a show in another city, and it was a pre-pa- It was a, it was a Second City sketch show that was catered to the specific city it was in. Um, so they would, they had a couple of veteran writers that they and a director that they would send in that would infiltrate the town, and then they would write a couple of sketches that were Atlanta-specific, and they would bring in some of their performers, but also hire some local performers, and we'd work together, and uh, they'd let us pitch a couple of ideas. Um, and it was, it had had a run already in Atlanta for about three years, two or three years. Um, And this was actually, I ended up getting in on the last cast, but it was the first time I auditioned for it. And I went in and auditioned and I got the job. And there's people that have been auditioning for years and still couldn't get hired. And I got hired right out of the gate. Um, I just, you know, and it's, you talk about living and dying by the laugh. I mean, I just had a good day. Whatever reason, there wasn't like, oh, I was born for this or I'm so much better than everybody else. It was, I had a good day. You know, the improv worked that day. And when it's working, it fuels you, you, you and you get more bold and you're having fun and people love watching you and you seem like a genius. And just that day, I was having a good day. Um, the improv was working for me that day and so I booked the job. And uh, that really validated me because I hadn't really, I, I don't, I, I'd gotten back into dads and I'd reestablished myself, but I wasn't really feeling, it was a new group. My old buddies were gone. There's a couple still hanging around, but it, they, it wasn't even their world anymore. There was this sort of new guard and they were younger and they were hip and super funny and they're like, who the hell is this girl and why do we need her? Uh, and back then, it, there were not a lot of women. So to be a female in dad nine years ago was still a very competitive space and a very intimidating space. Um, and so, yeah, so having a Second City job really validated me. It put me in a space to be performing regularly. I started getting a lot more exposure to, their, to sketch, which I was really good at because that, that tied in my two skills. I was a good actor. And a really good improviser typically is also a really good actor. Um, So it made sense and I was good at it. And that's, I think, you know, I got to do that show and then I did a couple cruise ships with those guys. So I really honed my skills away from Atlanta um, and got, got really strong. And so I was able to bring that confidence back to the stage. And again, it still comes in waves. I mean, there's definitely periods after that where I was like, this is it, I have to stop doing this, I'm just not having any fun, I feel so shitty, I don't feel good at it, Uh, and then I think the other thing that really shifted things for me, sort of the second wave of uh, doubt, was shifted when I started teaching, and that got me excited about improv again, because I was seeing it from a different perspective, and I was also getting to experience it from people who were loving it for the first time, so, yeah.
1: Wow, that, ooh, (laughs) this is getting really deep for me. (laughs) Oh, shit! I I mean, well, I I appreciate you telling your story because, I mean, I'm sure when you're going through this, it it can be difficult when you feel like Mm. you you have to give up and you have to quit. Um, So I appreciate you telling me this because I think it's a good lesson, not only for anyone who's listening, but for me, someone who wants to. Be successful and hopefully one day be accomplished in the comedy world. So I just appreciate you sharing this with me.
0: Absolutely. Well, improv is a skill set and it will make you good at so many other things in your life. But as a performance tool, one, it's a young man's game. And I will emphasize, man, it's still tough for a uh, female improviser, although that's, I'm really starting to see that shift and it's really exciting to me. Um, but uh, it's If you're an artist, I think, you're always questioning, you know, what am I doing? Am I good at this? What's the point? Those kind of things, that sort of soul-seeking is, I think, part of the process. Um, I don't know that everybody goes through it, but I definitely struggle, have struggled with it my whole career. Uh, You caught me on a middle day, because I kind of had a clunky workshop today, but I had a decent show on Thursday. So, I'm in the middle right now.
1: (laughs) Okay, so tell me a little bit about shifting away now from talking about improv. Because I I have to ask you about your experience working the movie Selma. Oh,
0: yeah, that was a great comedy. I saw it. It got a lot of laughs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no. What what were you about to say?
0: I was just going to say it's funny because... uh, I I was teasing Ava DuVernay as the director of it, and we were—it was our last night, uh, or was yeah—we we we had all gone to Montgomery to shoot. Basically, the last day of the film. They had another week with a couple of actors and a couple scenes, but the the bulk of the cast—it was our last day of shooting—was the next morning, and we were watching some special documentary, I think on CNN, about the civil rights movement. We were all hanging out in this hotel in Montgomery, and I was turning to Ava because we're all just getting a little drunk and being dipshits. Um, and I said, you know, you hired a bunch of comedians to do this movie. Like, Macy Nash? Like, what are you doing? It's amazing. Um, and, and Omar it definitely comes from a comedy background. I mean, there was a lot of us in that group that comedy was one of our mainstays, and she had hired us all to be dramatic actors. Not that we weren't capable of it, but I, I found it kind of interesting that she had sort of, gifted these roles to people who weren't necessarily um, dramatic actors first.
1: Why why do, you think, why do you think that was?
0: I think because they were right for the part, you know? Hmm. I think that they're, because the delineation isn't as, as clear as I make it, really, at the end of the day. I mean, Nisi was amazing. Amor was amazing. Everybody was Everybody was so good in that. And I think, I mean, you know, I guess the obvious answer is the the best comedians take it deadly serious. You know, so. When so. you look at, like, Bill Murray, or even, like, Adam Sandler, just, his oh, yeah. dramatic work is fantastic.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, Funny Funny People is one of my favorite movies.
0: Yeah. Like, the more real you play it, the more honestly you play it, the, without artifice, and that's one of the things I've really been fighting with my students, and with, honestly, with the company, with Dad's Garage, is, I'm really, really sick of seeing improvisers play at something, you know, to do the big funny voices because they're not, they're playing it safe. They're protecting themselves from being, being that person, you know, so they're, so they can't be judged as much.
1: Right. It's you...
0: safer. And it, it's a comment on the scene instead of just honestly playing that character. i no Matt that Stanton would say the same thing.
1: Right. As, yeah, when, I mean, I agree completely. When it comes to comedy, I think it's funnier when you go out there and you just let down all your barriers and you just show yourself. I think yeah. that's, that's hilarious.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a space for both, for sure. And you can absolutely play a big character,
1: honestly. Um, but you, you can tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely tell the difference. How did being in the movie Selma influenced your comedy uh, um, you know I, I don't know that
0: how I don't know that it was I could say it influenced my comedy it influenced my art work for sure Okay, because I really started to feel a call for um, activism within my art you know because you see we all we're seeing so much happening in our world that just triggering us and devastating us and shocking us and and, you know, sort of triggering this passion within us to change things and to to make the world a better place in some way. And so of course we think, oh, I gotta quit my job and, you know, fly to Puerto Rico and start rebuilding homes and or, you know, I have to uh you know, quit my job and, and start protesting outside the steps of D C or what you know, we don't we're looking for how to be of service. Um, And that was sort of a new thing for me because I realized that I had a skill and if there was a potential for my art to be of service, then I was going to be ahead of the game in terms of how I could help, you know, instead of just starting from square one, which I absolutely honor anybody that does that for sure. But I think that there's also a way to connect what you're already good at with where there's a need. So for me, that's why I created the one woman show I created. And of course, you know, when you speak to really uncomfortable issues like race um, inequality, you you can be really heavy handed about it and you can make everybody feel really shitty and cry um, and feel ashamed and uh, expose stories of just horror. And that's one way to do it for sure. but. If you can make everybody laugh, then that's a connective tissue that I think can be just as strong and maybe stronger in some places. You definitely can hook an audience. They're willing to listen to you and believe you and, and at least, not, if not believe you, at least listen to you and um, consider your point of view if they're laughing first. So my one-woman show had to have a strong comedic element to it in order to keep people in a safe place to question their own
1: perspectives. And with with your one-woman show, how hard did you find it to walk that line of making people laugh while also making people think? Horribly hard.
0: Really hard. Really natural for me because it kind of loops back to that thing of like, I love making everybody uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, there was definitely, it was terrifying for me because... Anytime someone laughs, you don't know why they're laughing. You know, I, I, I we, were, we were joking the other night about, um, Mark Kendall and I were joking about like when you make a joke and everybody starts laughing and you don't, you're, or you say something, not make a joke, but say something and everybody starts laughing and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it can be really intimidating because you want, the idea is you want to be able to, um, repeat that, right? Do You want to continue to get those laughs. You want, but if you don't know why they're laughing, uh, it's really hard to reiterate. Um, and with this one, I can even remember the opening night, uh, there was, a, you know, there's a, a crowd of people that were just ready to be in support of me. and also knew that I was an improviser and a comedian, so they were expecting to be given the opportunity to laugh. And, you know, at the top of the show, I definitely set up Some comedic bits, so they knew it was a safe space to laugh. But then, as we dug in, there were moments that people laughed inappropriately. (laughs) Um, uh, And uh, I had other audience members that got really offended at that. They're like, they were laughing at this civil rights plight. You know, so there's that moment of, shit, am I feeding into the problem? You know, I'm a white woman, I'm trying to talk about race. This is, I mean, in, that's inherently problematic. So is the laughter I'm soliciting or, you know, a, a triggering, is it, is it a healthy laughter or is it derisive? Is it inappropriate? Is it encouraging the wrong point of view? So, yeah, I mean, I pretty much wanted to throw up every night because I, I wasn't really sure. But I knew that I was coming from a sincere place and I was being as vulnerable as possible. And I was encouraging laughter as a way to release tension. Mm -hmm. So I had to trust that those intentions would, you know, they would win out in sort of a overall assessment of the show. You know, I don't know. I still don't know. (laughs) People are like, when are you going to do the show again? And I was like, "Uh, hashtag never. (laughs) I I don't know, man. I don't know if it was the right thing to do.
1: Overall. Um, can you tell me about the feedback and the critique that you got for the show and how it personally and also artistically impacted you?
0: Um, all, all the feedback I got almost across the board was incredibly positive. People okay. felt moved and changed, but that's what they told me to my face.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I did have a friend who was generous and brave enough to communicate to me about uh, a private conversation that had been happening among her circle of friends that was negative, um, and she sort of invited me into that conversation to get a, some sort of perspective. Um, but I think the negativity wasn't so much what I had done, but sort of the can of worms I was opening, that they weren't necessarily happy about me trying to open that can of worms, and maybe the approach, um, they hadn't seen the show, so they didn't, you know, White Woman in Progress is a pretty uh, um, provocative title. You know, so and that was intentional. Mm-hmm. Everything about that show, I intentionally provoked thought. Um, so, to me, that's you know that was so satisfying, and that's what I want to be doing with all of my work. Um, and it's definitely bled into everything I'm doing now. In that, I am not interested. You know, here's here's the theory: comedy is at the forefront and the ass end of every sort of shift in, cult, in the cultural paradigm, right? So we're the first ones to call attention to hypocrisy and, um, and inconsistencies and to take, take, take people to task in a comedic way. You know, we push those boundaries. But we're also the last ones to stop making jokes about stuff that's not funny anymore. You know, I mean, you can look at like Mark Maron's interview with Gallagher and he's like, well, you know, and Mark Maron's like, what do you, why are you making these jokes? They're really, whatever, racist or sexist or racist, mostly I think, was saying he was coming up again. And he's like, they're laughing. My job is to make them laugh. You know, and it's like, well, you know, whenever I watch us on stage and we reduce ourselves to uh, sort of sexually intimidating a female on stage, sort of um, objectifying them in a way that is rude. Um, and the audience is laughing, and I think to myself, "I don't want these laughs anymore."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And sometimes I'm contributing to them. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely a lot more aware of the responsibility I have as an artist to punch up and not punch down.
1: So, wow! I, like I said, I'm, I feel like I'm learning so much in this interview. Well, I don't think I like. <laughs> I know I'm learning so much. Like, wow! <laughs> well, I. Uh, wow i i'm I'm, I'm little <laughs> we, I, we went deep are you doing all right yeah <laughs> i'm oh I mean, yeah i'm good i'm just like really just trying to process everything you're telling me because you're giving me so many good pieces of knowledge and so many good Aww. guide what i want my Thanks career me. to be and what i want my life to be so truly i i thank you for that because i didn't oh gosh who uh who would have thought, you know, when I started this show, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do a show talking to comedians about their late night influences. And who know, Who knew that not only talking with you, but with all my other guests I've talked with, it would have such an impact on me. Um, But I just really uh. appreciate everything that you've been telling me.
0: Are you sure you're 19? Yeah. Did you know it's <laughs> <Well>, around 19. <19? laughs>
1: Well, it, it's no big deal, but my birthday is October 3rd, and I am turning the big 2-0, so... Whoa! You're not a teen anymore. No, I oh know my it. Oh, God. Out, and when people ask me how old I'm turning, I like to say two decades, because it makes it sound younger. So that's what I tell mm. people. Two decades. That's good.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're way ahead of the game, man, if you're digging into this stuff. I really respect that and appreciate it. Because, you know what, you're not alone, I think so many young comedians I'm so excited about, especially at Dad's, seeing the younger comedians, Um, they're not, you know, they're not burdened by the same restrictions that I was growing up. So, you know, uh, in the 90s, uh, female comedians started to emerge, uh, or at least I started to become more aware of sort of the new guard of comedians, and I think about, like, Margaret Cho or Sarah Silverman. Uh, And the comedy that they were doing in the late 90s was, shock comedy you know they were saying things that women shouldn't be saying you know like I love sex um and uh you know cussing and and being rude and crass and that was getting big laughs um and so that was uh something I took on I don't that doesn't isn't something I'm interested anymore in um which is sort of uh violating my own physicality for people's amusement you know, um, be the girl that... I I think we also... I also kind of experienced that with Damon Wayans' show um, was, you know, I was the nurse that gets semen all over her face and, you know, uh, the girl that gets humped by the giant black dick and, uh, ooh, it's so much better because it's a black dick, you know, and it's like, ugh, I think of that now and it it makes me sad in a way because I wasn't really allowed to be... uh, a woman, I, I had to be a woman according to what you know a man's perspective. And, and that's, not, I'm not, that's not to say that I wasn't completely complicit in that sort of agreement, but I see women coming up now that have none of that. Uh, and I'm also super grateful to the women that explored that area, like Sarah Silverman or Margaret Cho, because it was new territory, and they broke open a lot of stereotypes, and they broke down a lot of barriers for us. Um, but that sort of trajectory of comedy, you know, that's that's the old stuff now, and I'm so excited to see what young comedians are doing, and that they are being more intentional about their work, and they're being more individual, and and the kind of comedy that they're coming up with is so fresh and exciting. So, sort of where I am now in my comedy career is a strong desire to do just what we're doing right now, which is to um, create a space for people like you to to change comedy again and again and again absolutely. because i got to do it i got to be one of those women that broke down barriers and those barriers are gone and i'm so excited to see what what grows from that space
1: absolutely i i completely agree it's totally true and so hey. from from here um from now <laughs> presently um, what are you currently working on like for the future? And then also if people want to either find your work or see you perform, how can they do that?
0: Well, uh, I still play at dad's garage and I'm going to start teaching again. Um, I took a little break while I was doing my one woman show. So I'll be teaching improv again. Um, so you can always catch me at dad's doing comedy there. Thank goodness. they still let me play. <laughs> and, uh, other than that, I've, you know, there's a lot of TV work happening. I think the big thing that's happening for me right now is uh, I'm part of a, a new company in town called Picture It Productions, and it's really exciting for me because I know I told you I don't plan anything in advance, and I don't necessarily recommend that as a path, <laughs> um, but I've also employed sort of the yes and procedure for my life, so i when something interests me, when it excites me, and when it terrifies me, I move toward it. To picture it was that sort of next natural step, and we're developing television shows, um, and I'm getting to take on local writers and creatives and help them develop their ideas, especially in the comedy world, and then take those to Los Angeles. So we just sold a show in July, and we have a couple of other scripts and shows that are moving up the pipeline toward... uh, toward going to market and hopefully being a TV show. So that's a big part of my career path now is comedy writing um, and development of, you know, new, new talent.
1: Very cool. Well, that's awesome. So,
0: yeah. So check out Picture it Productions um, and Bad Garage if you want. More Tara.
1: <laughs> and for my final question for you, and this is a question I ask all my guests, it's mm-hmm. if you could give one piece of advice to either your younger self or somebody that wants to be you. What piece <laughs> of advice would you give them? Um,
0: I, to my younger self, I'd be like, don't drink so much. <laughs> 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 maybe maybe put, put, put the booze down. Um, I guess I would say I think the thing that worked best for me was Um, to keep all, you know, to try everything, to not just focus on, don't isolate one single thing as the only thing you can do or the only thing you can get good at, but to branch out and explore all possibilities. It's sort of a, you know, an improv idea of like say yes to things that come your way. If you've got the time and space, you know, try, keep keep trying new things. Um, There's so many alternate communities around here that are you know visual arts and performance art uh you know and just meeting up with new groups of people and putting yourself in new situations constantly uh expanding your repertoire of how you can tell your story is I think the way that it worked best
1: for me yeah yeah totally yeah well Tara, I have to say, I've talked to Matt Stanton, I had Mark Kendall on, I had Megan Leahy on, and I had Mm. Amber Nash on my show, and all of them have mentioned you in some way about being funny or playing with you. You have been brought up on all those shows, so I have to say, you have definitely had an influence here in atlanta I love comedy that.
0: and i know oh my gosh you just made my day
1: personally anytime i go to dad's garage and i see a show whether it be with friends or family or by myself and you come on the stage i every time have leaned over to whoever i'm with and i've gone oh this is going to be a good one we, we this is going to be oh a good one. thank you because you are genuinely and i mean this truly you were one of the funniest people i've ever met and i've ever seen oh my gosh I just truly appreciate you coming on the show today and teaching me so much. Really, teaching me so so much. Uh, I, I appreciate oh, it more appreciate. more than you know.
0: Well, thank you. Well, I hope we get to play together at some point. Are you going to come do jams at Dad's and stuff?
1: Yeah, I I well, what happened? My my dad's garage story is I did all four levels. Um, I took all the classes there, and then what happened was I just stopped and I, I, I should have kept up with it and I didn't. I transitioned into going to college which is an excuse because I go to Georgia State which is right down the street so like mm. I could have been there. Um, but I really do I want to get back into it and so Tuesday nights uh, I'm definitely going to start coming back for the student nights that they have there.
0: Yeah you have to let me know next time you're going to do a student night I'll, I'll, I'll make a, a special effort to be there so I can play with you.
1: Oh, I would appreciate that. Yeah, I'll definitely let you know. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that student nice is
0: great, and listen, it's not a mistake for you to to go do something else at all, and in fact, I strongly encourage it. Like, people, especially people that are listening to this because they know Dad's Garage and um, and they're wanting to break into that theater, uh, thank you, first of all, and please, please don't give up trying to be a part of our family because we need you, um, but also like, it's it's it would be a detriment to you as an artist to think that that's the only space uh, and just kind of following your instincts and, and what opportunities come up for you. Like, absolutely. Georgia State's a great place to play and there, you know, and you'll, you'll only get better no matter what, just from constantly broadening your horizons.
1: And you were just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb here. Boom. Unstoppable.
0: Yeah. Just- We're not going anywhere, I don't think. So we just paid for a house. So I think we're going to be here for a while. (laughs) So you can come back
1: anytime. For sure. And I will be there. Yay. Looking forward to it. Well, thank you again, Tara, for being on the show. My pleasure. And to anybody listening. Remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. And you can also find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night, where you can like our page. And in addition to all of that information I just threw at you, you can find us on iTunes as well. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Tara for being on the show. And we will see you next time. (laughs)